So uh, we have been amazed by what the Lord has done uh, through it. And let me turn to our subject this evening, what's right with my neighbor. Uh, and let's just pray that uh, the Lord will make our time fruitful. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for uh, today, for the joy of being together this morning to worship you, uh, for your word, which is uh, a light to our darkness, a lamp for our feet. And we pray that you will make our time this evening fruitful. We offer ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, do please feel free to, to stop me, to interrupt. You know, with the pastors and other guys in ministry last night, they just started jumping in with two feet as soon as I hardly opened my mouth. So uh, that was great. I love that. So uh, uh, please feel free to just stop me uh, and ask questions as we go along. Um, we'll have lots of time for discussion at the end. Um, but uh, I'll provide a kind of, uh, of starting off. Uh, and... My, my challenge to you really is this, to ask yourself the question always, what's right with my neighbor rather than what's wrong with my neighbor? What's right with this guy I work with or this woman what's, rather than what's wrong with them? Uh, my challenge to you is this, that uh, if you desire to speak to family members who are not Christian, uh, uh, how many of you here have close family members who are, are not believers, people in your immediate family, uh, two-thirds of you? How many of you have people in your extended family who are not Christian believers? Uh, almost everybody. Uh, there's probably one or two of you who can say, everybody in my family for generations, you know, uncles, aunts, first and second cousins, grandparents, great-grandparents are believers. I have a colleague like that at the seminary. Everybody he knows in his family Thousands of people going back to 1830 has been a Christian, you know, for uh, almost 200 years, you know, and it's just wonderful. Uh, God loves to uh, work through families. That's what he does. But most of us are not in that privileged position, and we have family members who are not believers. And uh, what I want us to think about this evening is how we begin to talk to them. And my challenge to you is that the way we begin to talk to them is to ask what is right with them, not what's wrong with them. Nobody likes being attacked for the sins and failures and problems in their lives. Uh, you, it's kind of a turn-off. Now, it's not just that, of course, uh, but as you think about the examples I used this morning, that's exactly what Jesus does. Fundamentally, his relationship with the Samaritan woman and with Zacchaeus uh, begins with something good about their lives. Uh, and there are many other examples like this uh, in the Gospels and also in the book of Acts. Uh, the people Jesus attacks for their sin are the really holy, righteous people in the church, uh, not the people outside. Uh, those people, Jesus looks for what is good in them and builds on that. And that's just fascinating to see. And the same is true when we read through the book of Acts. Now, what is our calling? Uh, I, I said this morning in both our sessions that Jesus calls us into the world following him, to be in the world as he was in the world. And uh, to express it very simply, uh, we're called, first of all, to live the truth uh, before our family members who are not believers, before uh, 
our friends, before our neighbors, before people in our workplace who are not Christians, before our fellow students, uh, before kids in school uh, who are around us, if we are children in school. Uh, that's our calling, to make the gospel attractive by our lives. That's how the Apostle Paul puts it. That's how Jesus puts it, of course, as well. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven. When I became a Christian, I grew up in a completely non-Christian family, and my parents weren't at all interested at first in what I had to say. Uh, they were interested, though, in the transformation of my life. And... Uh, Peter puts it very straight for women whose husbands are unbelievers, and this is true for any of you who have family members who are not Christians, children, parents, brothers, sisters, husbands, wives. Uh, Peter says, win them without a word by your behavior. Uh, if you've got close family members, uh, they will pay no attention to anything you say uh, unless there's something being transformed in your life. So first of all, your life, uh, every believer is on trial before the world. You live before a watching world and non-Christians are constantly making judgments about the truth of the Christian faith on the basis of your life. That's actually what's happening every day of your life. The way you live as husbands and wives, as parents and children, uh, the way you work, uh, the non-Christians around you are drawing conclusions about whether Christianity is worth paying any attention to or not. That's simply the reality. We have to ignore, accept that. Uh, we may not like it, but that's the way it is. That's the way actually it ought to be. Uh, we have no right to encourage somebody to believe in something unless it actually changes the way people live. So your life is on trial. And you are called, like Jesus, to commit yourself to deep friendships with unbelievers. That's what Jesus did. That's what he spends his life doing. That's what he's criticized for, uh, his intimate friendships uh, with sinners. But that's our calling. And the figures are something like this. 90% of all unbelievers who become Christians become believers primarily through a relationship with a Christian, with a family member, with a friend, with a colleague at work, with a fellow student. Uh, that's the reality uh, uh, right now. That's the reality in which you live. People being converted, yeah, they may in the end become a Christian listening to a sermon, listening to something, uh, some message they've downloaded from the web, but uh, you know, they are drawn in the first place almost always, by a close friendship with a believer, uh, a Christian who is actually following Jesus into the world and giving themselves to friendships with unbelievers. So living the truth, being friends, and praying, of course, because God can reach the parts of somebody that I can never reach. Uh, Francis Schaeff used to say to us every day when we were working with him in Labrie, uh, what we're trying to do isn't difficult, it's impossible. Uh, you can't save anybody, you can't change anybody, but God can. So you need to pray. Uh, and we pray. We pray for our family, for our friends, for our colleagues, for our neighbors, for our fellow students. Uh, that's uh, our calling. And that may take a long time. We'll talk about that a bit later, the length of time it sometimes takes. Now, what does God use to draw people? 
Well, he uses an infinite variety of means. And uh, the, the basic point I want to make this evening is this, that if we ask the question, where can I begin to talk to somebody, the answer to that question is where I see God already at work in their lives. So where do I see God at work? It doesn't begin with me. Evangelism never begins with me. Uh, God is at work in somebody's life long before I get there. And so my task is simply to cooperate with God, with what he is already doing, to cooperate with the testimonies of the Holy Spirit. God has all kinds of testimonies he brings to bear on the life of the non-Christian. And so what we are called to do is as we look at the lives of our friends, our neighbors, our workmates, our family members, to ask, basically, what's good about them? What's right with my neighbor? Where is there any truth? Where is there beauty? Where is there goodness? Where are there things in their life that I can admire, uh, that I can find joy in, delight in, learn from? Uh, Paul puts it this way. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Uh, I want to challenge you to apply that in your relationship with unbelievers. We don't usually do that, but that, I believe, is what the New Testament is calling us to do. That's not what that passage is about, but I'm applying it to that. That's what you see Jesus doing constantly in his interactions with people, and that's what you see the Apostle Paul doing as well. Now, God has many different kinds of testimonies. And I could talk about, I give a lecture on each one of these. I'm not going to. But God is revealing himself, of course, in the beauty of creation. Any delight in nature by an unbeliever in this created world is God's work in their heart. God's kind gifts through his providential care are glorious people made in God's image. Uh, the wonderful things that it means for us to be human. God's moral wisdom, which is he gladly gives to the whole human race. Uh, wherever you go, there is moral wisdom. His rule over the history of nations and individuals. God is constantly at work ruling the nations to call people to himself and ruling the lives of individuals in the same way. Echoes of Eden in literature, music, art, movies, recalling creation, fall, and redemption. Uh, Harry Potter uh, is filled with echoes of the brokenness of the human condition and of redemption. Uh, the last book is a really wonderful book, actually. She's a Christian, of course, and uh, the last Harry Potter book is about, really, uh, the work of Christ, uh, offering up his life uh, for us. Uh, through telling the story of Harry Potter himself, giving up his life for his friends. But Echoes of Eden, now think of the tremendous interest there was in the film Avatar. Uh, many young people went to see it over and over again because it created a great longing in them for a better world. Uh, it's very beautiful. Uh, all kinds of problems with some of the ideas, but there's something in that that was really lovely, which people were responding to. Your life, the community of the church, there should be a fragrance of Christ in everything the believer is doing. God's Word itself and the Holy Spirit is using all of these means to work in the lives of unbelievers. 
Now what I'm going to do is give a series of examples uh, to help you think about uh, what I'm trying to say in a very practical way. I'll give a couple of examples to my family and a couple of friends. First of all, I'm going to talk about my father. Uh, Paul said this morning, spoke this morning about my father's conversion. Well, I grew up in a home which was not Christian at all. Uh, my father was a communist uh, for many, many years. Uh, he fought as a soldier in the First World War. He became a communist in 1918 uh, when he came back from the war. Uh, when he was 45, during the Second World War, he married my mother, who was 19. And they had the best marriage I have ever seen. Uh, really wonderful, wonderful relationship. So it was a, a, a lovely home to grow up in. I became converted at university. And then, uh, Paul was talking about it this morning. I became a Christian in 1966. And it was in my final year at university. Uh, the day after graduation, I went off to Brie in Switzerland. I was a brand new believer. And I worked there for a year, met my wife, got married. Schaefer sent me to St. Louis to seminary. Uh, so I was there for three years. Uh, in all of that time, uh, I graduated in 71. In those five years, I had spent maybe three or four weeks at home with my family. Uh, a little bit of time on my honeymoon, uh, a day or two here. Uh, but uh, very little time. But we did stay in very close touch. Uh, in those days, you couldn't fly from the States to England uh, unless you had a great deal of money. And I was a student, so I didn't have a great deal of money. And my parents were very poor, uh, really poor. I uh, grew up in very se severe poverty, uh, uh, but in a really wonderful, wonderful home. Uh, material things I learned as a child were not the most important things in life. Our family was the place where everybody wanted to come because my parents had this wonderful marriage and were such great parents and were very hospitable. Now, when I graduated from Covenant in 1971 in St. Louis, the seminary wanted me to stay and teach. But we felt compelled to go back to England. Uh, my father was not a Christian. He was 75 years old, and he was very, very ill. And so for our final year there, we were praying about going back to live near them and so that I could have the opportunity to share the gospel with him. Uh, I didn't want him going to hell. Uh, and so we felt constrained to put all plans for ministry on one side and simply go back to live near them. And so we prayed earnestly about that. Lord, you know, uh, there we're going to go. Um, help me find a job. Well, just a month before I graduated... Francis Neither Schaefer came to St. Louis to teach at the seminary and do other things in St. Louis, and my wife and I had organized their schedule, so we were running them around, and on the final evening, we had dinner with them, and they were catching us up. Uh, we had worked with them in their home in Switzerland. That's where we met. My wife was Francis Schaefer's secretary. I was Edith Schaefer's cook. That's how we met each other uh, and got married while we were there. But... Uh, they told us that evening that God had just given Brie a new property, uh, a big English manor house in the south of England, and uh, that one of their daughters and sons-in-law had just gone to work there and they needed somebody to help them get the work going. 
And I said, where is this? Uh, and it was just 15 miles from my parents' home. And we were going to be leaving a month later. Uh, and uh, there God had opened this extraordinary door of all the places in Britain that he could have given Labria property in his kind providence. That's where it was, uh, where we were going. And this was the ministry we loved best in the world. Uh, and uh, there we were being asked basically to go there. And so we applied and they sent us a telegram saying, come immediately. So we went. Uh, and what that meant, of course, uh, we got there uh, in the late summer uh, of 1971. And uh, we were able, I was able to go over and dry o- drive over to see my dad every day uh, for the last six months of his life. He became a Christian the next April, in April 72, and died in June uh, that year. Now, how did I talk to him? Uh, where was I going to begin? Well, uh, what was right about his life? Uh, with my dad, that was very easy. He was such a wonderful man. Uh, I will tell you, every day of my life, when I think about how to love my wife, my father is my inspiration. My father, who was not a Christian believer until the very end of his life, at the age of 75. But every day of my life, uh, he is my model, the best model I've ever seen of how to be a good husband, uh, of how to be a good father. Uh, He was a really wonderful, wonderful man in all kinds of ways. Uh, my parents were extraordinarily generous. They were very poor. You know, my father worked as a gardener on a local estate and was paid just peanuts. And, uh, but my parents sent us uh, with gifts around the village with food for people who had even less than they did. At Christmas, at Easter, at harvest, they were incredibly hospitable uh, with the very little that they had. And uh, there were many very beautiful things in my father's life. And so as I began to talk to him, uh, basically, uh, I said, here are these wonderful things. You know, your passionate commitment to marriage, your love for family. Uh, uh, My father was very concerned about economic justice. Uh, He was a communist, after all, Uh, but passionately concerned about economic justice and... uh, At each of those points, I tried to show him that these things are God's gifts to us, uh, that they have no place in Marxism at all. Uh, Marxism saw marriage as a bourgeois institution, uh, and in the Soviet Union it was abolished in 1917. The the damage was so great that already by 1923 they reinstituted marriage because of the chaos that was caused. But I showed how this is the way God has created us. He's created us, male and female, to delight in each other, to become one. This is his gift. God is the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. God is the one who cares about justice far more passionately than uh, Karl Marx ever did. And I read him that wonderful passage in James chapter 5. Listen, you rich people, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Uh, You have withheld the wages of your laborers. You fattened yourselves for the day of slaughter. Uh, And my dad loved that passage. And uh, God is the one who really cares about these things. He's the one who's going to bring justice to this earth and punish every kind of wickedness. So, And my father listens. Every day I'd go and I'd talk about these things and how they 
were God's gifts to us. Uh, they had no place in Marxism. So in one sense, I was giving with one hand, this is the truth, and taking away with another. Uh, it doesn't fit here, but this is where it comes from. And uh, my father responded. And he became a Christian, as I said, just six weeks uh, before he died. And that was a wonderful thing, yes. Yeah, these are God's testimonies in a person's life. That's exactly my point. Wherever we see anything good, all truth, all goodness, all delight in institutions like marriage and the family, these are God's good gifts to the human race. And where you have something like this in somebody's life, this is the area in the person's life where God is already at work drawing them to himself. You know, all God's gifts come from him and lead back to him. So what I'm seeking to do is simply cooperate with that work that God is already doing. So a passionate moral conviction, a concern for justice. Let's say you, your friend is, has a passionate concern for the environment. Well, be delighted with that. Christians ought to call, care more for this world than anybody. We know who made it. We are God's stewards who have been set here to care for this creation. So rather than being bothered by it, be delighted by it. You know, th this, is, this is truth uh, in a person's life. These are God's testimonies already at work in their heart. And your calling is to serve them and to help the person see that they actually come from God himself. And they have no foundation, really, in the end, for these things they cherish in the idols that they serve. That's not where they come from. So I'm seeking to detach their heart from whatever idol they serve, in my father's case, communism, and turn it to the Lord. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing. I'm simply serving his work. And so, yes, exactly. These are God's testimonies. That was wonderful. My dad became uh, a believer uh, that day in April. Uh, and my mother, exactly a year later, on the anniversary of his death, I went to spend uh, the day with her, uh, and she was grieving. And of course, grief is the right response to death. You know, God didn't create us to die. He created us to live uh, in fellowship with him. And death is an abnormality, and grief is the appropriate response to it, uh, to such tragedy. And so I went to talk to her about the resurrection that day. Uh, and God's wiping away of our tears. And that's the day she became uh, a believer. Let's turn to somebody much more difficult. Uh, probably the most obnoxious person I have ever met in my life. Uh, this is my stepfather. Uh, after my dad died, my uh, mother uh, married again two years later. You know, she had been very happy, uh, extraordinarily happily married. She was still in her late 40s when my father died because of the difference uh, in their age. And so she thought, well, marriage is a, is a, is a, is a wonderful institution. I'll get married again. Uh, she was very lonely. We had all grown up and just left home. Uh, and so she was by herself. She lived way out in the country. She didn't drive. Uh, 
she had really no means of getting around and uh, we had a bus that came once a week down our little lane way out in the boonies there and uh, so she felt well I need to try to meet somebody and so she put an ad in the Lonely Hearts column in the local newspaper uh, and uh, this guy answered it and uh, you know I she told me she was going to marry him. I said, you know, Mum, you hardly know him. You, you can't tell your mother who to marry and not to marry. I tried, uh, but uh, it, it was challenging. I said, you know, he's not a Christian, uh, and you really don't know him. You know, he, he, he was uh, a person who, was, uh, who could make himself very delightful, um, just very humorous and very friendly and engaging, uh, but uh, I said, you have no idea really what's underneath. Uh, and he's utterly uninterested in Christianity. She said, well, I'm going to marry him anyway. So uh, I did the wedding, and it was just really dreadful. He got drunk uh, at the wedding service and actually reached over and tried to, to grab my wife's breast right in front of my mother during the middle of the wedding service. And... Uh, it's the only time I've done a wedding, and I've done lots of weddings, where I wanted to knock the bridegroom out. Uh, I was really furious. I was angry for my wife. I was humiliated for my mother. Uh, my mother came to me the day after the wedding, and she said, you were right, I've made a terrible mistake. Uh, but she said, I've made my bed, and I'm going to lie on it. Uh, she would not consider divorce. Uh, and the next 23 years were terrible. Um, she, he treated her terribly. My mother loves books. She loves music. She loves drama. He wouldn't allow her to read, to watch plays or, or movies or listen to music. He said that was selfish. Uh, life had to completely focus uh, around him. Uh, when we would go to visit, he would always complain. Uh, we have three little boys, and my mother adores them. She's a wonderful grandmother, but he wouldn't really let her do anything uh, for them wouldn't let her give to them. Uh, she could ne we could never ask her to come and look after them or leave them with her. Uh, uh, he, was, uh, he just wouldn't hear of it. Uh, he was completely uh, threatened by me because, uh, you know, because my mother loved me. And that was uh, enough to make him dislike me. Uh, he was a man who boasted he'd never read a book in his life. Uh, and uh, so he was intimidated by me as a teacher. Uh, with lots of education, uh, somebody who loves books. Uh, not that I ever tried to show off any of my learning to him. Uh, it wouldn't have been appropriate, but uh, you know, it was really awful. It was absolutely miserable. And uh, at first, he got drunk every day. Uh, he, just, he was a Scotsman, and he would drink scotch and uh, scotch whiskey. So my mother gave up her job uh, just to stay at home with him. She was a school teacher, which she absolutely loved. She taught little kids five to seven years old in the local country school and uh, she gave her job up just so that she could stay home with him and stop him drinking all day uh, and uh, and she just loved him uh, and was faithful to him uh, despite uh, the awful way he treated her. A friend of mine, a fellow pastor said, Jeremy, you should pray that he will die and I thought I would love to. I would love to but Jesus says to us, love your enemies and he was my enemy. Uh, do good to those who hate you, and he certainly hated me. Uh, bless those who curse you, and he cursed me regularly. Uh, 
pray for them. So instead of praying that he will die, I started praying for him. And I had to ask myself the question, you know, what is good about his life? Uh, is there anything in his life which I can treasure, which I can honor? And I will tell you, there was very little. Uh, he was indeed an obnoxious man in all kinds of ways. But there was one thing. Uh, my stepfather loved to grow flowers. Uh, that was his passion. Uh, and so do I. You know, my father worked as a gardener and he loved to grow things. And uh, so do I. That's what I, I worked every vacation, Christmas, Easter and summer from when I was 11 years old uh, at a local estate working as a gardener there and then full-time for a year between high school and college and all the way through college as well. I love to grow things and uh, that was my work but this was what he loved and so I thought this is a good thing so I will build a relationship with him on the basis of his delight in growing flowers. So on his birthday, his first birthday after they were married, he was about 15 years older than my mother. Uh, on his first birthday after they were married, I gave him two fuchsias. Some of you will know what they are. You usually see them in hanging baskets. The purple, pink, red, white, uh, these lovely, lovely flowers. Difficult to grow in a hot climate like this. Uh, I tried in St. Louis this summer. It wasn't easy because we had the hottest summer for 75 years and uh, just about survived. But... Uh, I gave him two named varieties on his birthday. We had a nursery uh, nearby, a plant nursery that specialized in these things. And then every year I gave him two more on their wedding anniversary and two more on his birthday until he ended up with a huge collection of these things. And uh, he just absolutely loved them. Uh, I gave him books on how to grow them. And they were the only books in his life he'd ever read. And he just read them from cover to cover. He entered these flowers in the local. Every village in England has a flower show, a vegetable show. And he entered these things in there and he won prizes with them. You know, he was just so proud of them. And they were the basis of my relationship with him. Uh, we eventually developed. It took many years, a, a good relationship. Uh, and good enough that they were prepared to come and visit us in St. Louis after... We moved to St. Louis. They came three times and stayed two or three weeks each time. And on the very last time he came, uh, he was 86 years old. And it was just uh, a few months before he died. And he never wanted to come to church because he hated church. Uh, like most British people, he despised the church. He despised pastors. Uh, utterly uninterested in Christianity. Uh, and that particular Sunday, I was preaching in one of our churches there, and he said, Jerem, uh, I know you're preaching. Could I come and hear? Uh, and I was astonished. Uh, and I thought, Lord, you know, you have to give me the words today uh, to say. Uh, this is the one occasion in his life he's going to listen to a sermon. And uh, so he came, and that afternoon, I was out in the backyard, and he came out to me, and he said, Jerem, I know I don't have long to live, and I'm afraid to die. And uh, he became a Christian. It was something I had never believed would happen. My prayers were entirely without faith that uh, the Lord would be able to work in his heart because he was such an awful man. 
And the last six months of his life, he lived six months, he treated my mother really well. And that's what she remembers. She doesn't remember 23 years of, of misery. She remembers six months of happiness and his kind treatment of her. And uh, when the Bible says love covers a multitude of sins, it really does. You know, her love covered his sins uh, in the most extraordinary way. And when he died, we had just arrived in England uh, to take my youngest son's wedding over there. And the day we arrived, uh, David died. He had a stroke and died that night. And so I did his funeral just two days before our son's wedding. And uh, we were looking through his things, and he, and he kept a kind of journal, uh, which for years he'd kept a record of all the things he was growing in it. But in the last six months, he started writing personal things in there. And about a month before he died, he'd written in there how much he loved me. And that he wanted me to, to do his funeral. Which I gladly did, of course. We covered his coffin with pots of fuchsias uh, at the funeral service. And then on his grave, we put a hardy one, which will survive the English winters. And that's where it's growing to this day. Uh, because it was that little thing. Uh, that was what God used. Of course, he used my mother's love. Uh, more than anything but in terms of my relationship with him and being able to share the truth with him it was really simply those flowers uh, this was the one area of God's testimony in his heart let me give a, a third example this is a friend who, who is not yet a believer though he's not far from the kingdom of God uh, his wife uh, became a Christian about 38 years ago in the church where I served as a pastor in England and is one of my wife's very dearest friends. Uh, he was a banker, a very successful banker working in London, uh, fairly prosperous, uh, but he hated Christianity. When his wife became a Christian, he tried to forbid her to be a Christian and she said, uh, you know, I, you, you can't do that. I serve God first. I love you. I'll, I'll obey you wherever I can, but not in that. He forbade her to teach the children the Christian faith. And she said, uh, I'll be wise and I'll do it when you're not at home, but I can't obey you there either. Uh, and so she faithfully taught her children and prayed for them, and, and they are believers today. But she was very wise about it. She could never invite Christians over uh, unless he was away traveling uh, on some business trip uh, but uh, he never wanted to meet any of us uh, to have anything to do with us but about I suppose it was about six years ago five years ago uh, we were over in England and my wife has stayed very in very close contact with his wife and uh, I guess I'm less of a threat because I live 6,000 miles away uh, from him, 5,000 miles away. Uh, and uh, so she said to him, uh, Jeremy and Vic, you're over here. Um, do you think I could invite them to lunch? Uh, he's retired now. 
they have a little sheep farm in this very beautiful part of the south of England. She raises sheep and he does all the tractor work and stuff for her. It's in his 70s now. And uh, so he, he was very reluctant, but he agreed, okay, okay. And so we went to lunch. And uh, that first time was quite difficult. Uh, he drank a little bit too much wine, and uh, very nice wine, but he drank a little too much of it. But uh, actually, we got on quite well, and uh, much to his surprise. And uh, so the next year, we were over there, and uh, and uh, she said to him, you know, Jeremy and Vicky are visiting again. And we were visiting our son and his family, and, uh, and he said, well, ha- have them over. Uh, she didn't need to push it this time. Uh, and so we went, and uh, we just got on really well. Well, that time, uh, we were there from 12 o'clock when we arrived for lunch till 5 in the afternoon, and he didn't want us to go. And we had a wonderful conversation, and this was about a year before the recession. And he is a man who has extraordinary wisdom about finances. Uh, this is what is good in his life his wisdom uh, about international finance and business. And he forecast the recession. He was, I had, I read quite a lot about about the economy, but nobody was forecasting a recession. But he forecasted it in great detail, uh, what was going to happen in Britain, in America, uh, all over the world, and the consequences that there would be in terms of long-term unemployment here, and in Western Europe, uh, and in other places. And as he was talking about it, uh, he spoke with enormous moral passion about the folly uh, and the immorality of many of the decisions made by our governments, both in America and Britain, and by leading people in business, in the banking and mortgage industries. Uh, He spoke with tremendous passion about it. And it was very moving listening to him. And then we we moved on to something else, and uh, we were discussing something completely different. And then he said, it's all relative anyway. Uh, And uh, I thought, now is the moment I have to say something. Uh, And uh, you have these uh, opportunities, these open doors, and you have to have the courage then to walk through them. And uh, I said to him, you know, brother... I won't give you his name, but let's call him John. John, you're no relativist. Just think of the moral passion with which you've been speaking about what's been happening in the banking industry, his own industry, and elsewhere. And he said, you're right, I'm not a relativist. I'm not. And it was very moving, and then it went very quiet. And for the first time in our relationship together, and it was the first time his wife had ever heard him in all the years of marriage, he started talking about himself. Uh, And he said, no, I'm not a relativist. And he said, in fact, as I look at my own life, I've done things myself uh, in business of which I'm deeply ashamed. And I'm going to have to carry them to the grave. Uh, And I thought... This is another of those moments. And uh, I said, you know, no, you don't. That's exactly why Jesus died. And uh, he said, that's too easy. 
That's too easy. And I, I said, oh, no, it isn't. It wasn't easy for Jesus. And it'll be the most difficult thing you ever do in your life uh, to humble yourself before God and acknowledge you need what God has done in Christ. And uh, he said, well, he said it'll take a miracle. He said, it'll take a Damascus Road experience. And I thought, this guy's been reading the New Testament uh, secretly and not telling his wife. And, uh, uh, and uh, I said, no, it won't. I said, it'll be just like C.S. Lewis, who said, finally, I was dragged, the most reluctant convert, into the kingdom. And he said, kicking and screaming. And I said, yeah, that's you exactly. That's you exactly. And, uh, and now I'm able to tease him uh, that he's going to become a Christian sometime. And uh, he loves to tease me about what I do. He writes me these letters um, uh, about my work at the seminary. And uh, we just have now the most beautiful relationship. And uh, uh, the next time we went, he invited us over. He, we, she doesn't have to ask. He says, Jeremy and Vicky are here, aren't they? Uh, let's have them over. And we'll go for five or six hours. And he just talks and talks and talks. And uh, we now have this wonderful relationship. And uh, I'm able to really push him. And, you know, the last time I said to him, as we were leaving, I said, oh, John, you know, if I'm pushing you too hard, please tell me to back off. Uh, and he said, no, I love it. <laughs> I love it. But he is well on the way to the kingdom. And his wife's years of faithfulness to him, which were not easy because he was a difficult man, uh, and love and her prayers for him, uh, she knows he's going to be converted now too. Uh, but he is, he is well on the way to the kingdom. And again, there, the father's testimony in him, his wisdom about finance. Uh, and uh, that was the point where we began to be able to really talk. Uh, when I go, I always go with lots of questions, not as a kind of technique, but uh, I've never met anybody who knows so much uh, about what's going on in the world. So uh, uh, I'm de delighted to listen to him, to learn from him, because he has much... He has much uh, to teach me. So that's a, a third example. Uh, a fourth is simply the letters I give my students to write. When I teach apologetics at the seminary, every one of my students, that's every student in the seminary, has to write a letter to a non-Christian that they know personally. Family member, a friend, a colleague at work. And they have to begin with what is right in this person's life. That's where they have to start. And uh, uh, many of them have to start with an apology because many of them have treated family members very badly, uh, criticizing them for their behavior, whether they're fornicating or committing adultery or gay or whatever it is, attacking them. It's not appropriate to attack non-Christians for their behavior. So many of them have to start by writing a letter of apology. Uh, please forgive me for the things I've said for you, for the way I've treated you, uh, for the way I've separated myself from you. Uh, and uh, I'm sorry. Uh, I know this isn't what Jesus calls me to do. Uh, when I came up with this assignment, uh, I wasn't thinking of what God would do through it, but rather what I was trying to teach our students. But the Lord has used those letters to bring many, many people to faith uh, over the years. Uh, and to restore many broken relationships in families as well between believers and their unbelieving uh, family members. So this is something I'm teaching all the time, working at all the time, helping our students think about in relationship to the people uh, they know. 
Let me finish with a final example. I have a very dear friend in St. Louis who I've known now for uh, 43 years. Uh, I lived in his home when I was a student at the seminary and uh, took care of his yard in exchange for our rent uh, as a student. And we got close then. Uh, he's a banker uh, as well. And uh, a year or so ago, uh, we were at his son's wedding, which I'll say about and talk about in a minute. And uh, there was some another Christian couple there, and they said, we've known him for 10 years, and we just gave up long ago. Wow, why do you hang in there? Why do you still keep your relationship going? Why do you pray for him? Uh, and uh, I was very saddened by that question, because why would we think, when we think of what God has done for us, spending thousands of years planning to send his son and then giving his son to death up for us. Why would I think that 43 years is a long time to pray for somebody or to give myself to a relationship with them? That's tiny compared with what God has done for me and for you. So that's not long. So you hang in there. Uh, we always have Thanksgiving together. Uh, in their home, we usually have Christmas together, uh, Easter. Uh, we are very close to them, and uh, we just pray that God will open the doors in his time. And he does. He's given me over the years all kinds of wonderful opportunities. Uh, we've become so close that when his aunt died, who was his business partner, he asked me to do the funeral. Um, this man is not a Christian. Uh, he knew I was going to preach the gospel there. I mean, that's what I believe. He doesn't expect me to pretend I don't believe it. So uh, I had this wonderful opportunity uh, preaching the gospel. His aunt, uh, it was very moving. There was one other Christian uh, at the funeral who was the uh, elderly African-American maid who had looked after this woman in her 90s for the last 30 years of her life and served her. And she was a believer. And she had led this old lady to faith in the last few months of her life. She was the other Christian there, but all of this old lady's friends were there. There was like 60 people in their 70s and 80s. And uh, none of them had ever been to church in their life. There's lots of people in America like that. What they heard that day was completely new. Uh, and it was just wonderful. You know, that's one door that God has opened through my relationship with this guy. Uh, and... Then uh, a year or so ago, their son got married. He's an atheist. He, he married a committed Muslim. Uh, his family moved here from Pakistan about 35 years ago. And uh, that was a challenge doing the wedding because there were about 35 Muslims, 15 Jews, a couple of Japanese Buddhists, lots of atheists, agnostics, a handful of Christians. It's a very interesting uh, wedding to do. And uh, I think I prayed about that one more than anything I've ever done in my life because it was such a challenging setting, because the parents were furious that a Christian pastor had been asked to do the wedding, the Muslim parents. They were very, very angry. and uh, So that was a challenge, just praying uh, about that one. But uh, the Lord opens doors in unexpected places. So pray. That's the most important thing. Who is sufficient for such situations? None of us are. Uh, but with God, all things are possible. You know, it's impossible for us to save people, but uh, God is the one who is able to do things. And 
I'll finish just with these uh, lovely words from 2 Corinthians. You know, you and I are jars of clay, but we have the treasure of the gospel in these jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Amen. Okay, questions? Questions? Yes, sir. No, I had to be very careful. It's a good question. What about at the wedding with all those Muslims there? Yeah, the, the parents were, were very furious that uh, uh, a Christian was going to do the wedding, so of course I had to be careful in that setting. And uh, I had to be careful. I, I, I had to design the wedding service a little bit differently from usual. And in my sermon, as I said, I prayed more for that sermon than any message I've ever given in my life. Uh, I prepared hard, but uh, I prayed a lot more. And, you know, the Lord was very kind. Um, I think I've had more comments on that message. It was less like seven or eight minutes long. This was uh, an outdoor wedding in a meadow in Maine. I had more comments on that sermon than anything, any message I've ever given in any setting. I had some wonderful conversations with the Muslims afterwards, and... Uh, uh, one of the things that happened that helped was we arrived up there two days before the wedding. And on the day we arrived, they had a kind of casual get-together where nobody was introduced to anybody. Uh, and I thought, I've got to make an effort to get to, to meet this girl's father. Um, and he didn't know who I was, so I just went and uh, started chatting with him. And... Uh, just asked him about the political situation in Pakistan, and I'd been reading about it. It was just after the assassination of, uh, a few months after the assassination of Benazir Bhutto, who was running, uh, you know, wanting to, to be the prime minister. And uh, we had this wonderful conversation. And, uh, you know, we got on just great. And so the next night, we had this formal dinner where everybody who could. Uh, our hosts, uh, uh, the, the son's parents, bought my wife and I Pakistani clothes. We had this Pakistani dinner, so I was wearing this long robe and this golden sash, and it was kind of beautiful, this uh, uh, clothes, and uh, and a pair of these you know, white pants. And uh, they, uh, I get introduced, of course, to the bride's parents. And he looks at me, and he says, You? You're the pastor, and it was too late for him to hate me. You know, you we were getting on fine. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so uh, that helped enormously, uh, just uh, having made the effort to uh, talk to him uh, before he knew who I was, uh, and, uh, and to discover that I was a, a reasonable human being who had ideas, you know, in common, things we both cared about. So yes, I had to be very careful in that setting. I couldn't just come straight out and preach the gospel. Uh, but uh, uh, I certainly gave a message that was genuinely Christian. And uh, I had a lot of response from Muslims uh, at the wedding, at the reception. I talked for hours with people afterwards. And, and uh, the young couple themselves have told me several times, 
uh, we think about what you said every day of our married life. Uh, we go back to it, and I've been asked for so many copies of it by people who were there. Uh, and uh, it's just been very moving, and I know the Lord is continuing to use it. But yeah, you obviously have to speak with, with care uh, in some settings. But uh, any military chaplain has the same challenge. Uh, any Christian chaplain in the U.S. forces uh, has to constantly think carefully about what they're going to say because they're ministering to soldiers, some of whom are Christian, some of whom are Jewish, some of whom are Muslim, Hindu, atheist, etc. And they have to respect that context uh, rather than abuse it or take advantage of it inappropriately. And so, yeah, you, you pray for God's wisdom in such a setting to speak the truth without uh, causing unnecessary offense. Yeah. Yes. That's a great question. Obviously, it's, it's true in, in St. Louis uh, as well. In some ways, St. Louis is a southern city. So there are many, many nominal Christians. Uh, in our setting, uh, St. Louis was predominantly settled by Roman Catholics. Uh, the biggest proportion of the, con of, of the population are German, uh, mostly Catholic from southern Germany and Lutheran. The second biggest population group are Irish, who are mostly Catholic. Also lots of Italians, uh, Catholic. So you know, we, we have a population with many nominal Christians, some Protestants, some Catholic. But actually in any growing church, and I'm sure this is true here in Wilmington, just as it is in St. Louis, you'll find that in a, in a church that's growing, most of the people who are coming to faith are coming from nominal Christian backgrounds. You know, they've had some kind of some kind of respect for God, some kind of respect for the person of Christ, some kind of respect for the Bible. 
some respect for God's moral laws. So think about those things as good things uh, rather than being angry about them. Uh, it's, it's just the same. We, uh, don't be angry with the nominalness. Be thankful for the good things that are there. Uh, I will tell you, if you're working in a, in a radically secular post-Christian setting like Britain or France, it is very much more difficult. The people in Britain or, or France are utterly uninterested in Christianity. They can't imagine going to church. It doesn't, it's not something that fits into their horizons. You know, they're like my stepfather, most of them. Uh, they think, if they think about church at all, which they don't, they think of it as just a load of hypocrites and self-righteous people. And, uh, you know, you think of portraits of pastors in British movies, like Four Weddings and a Funeral, The Princess Bride, or something like that. And uh, that's how British people think of, of the church. They really do. So you'll be thankful for people who, who have some respect still for the institution of the church, for the Bible, for the Word of God, for the person of Jesus. Uh, those are things on which you can build you know, because they are good things. So don't be angry at their nominal nature. Uh, you can leave anger to God. Our anger doesn't work His righteousness. Uh, even when we're righteously angry, uh, we so very rapidly become unrighteously angry. Uh, and that's why Paul says, don't let the sun go down in your anger because we never keep righteous anger long. It so soon develops into anger, bitterness, cynicism, you know, hatred, rejection, a critical spirit. And uh, so we leave, leave judgment to the Lord and our calling is to to see again where there are things in a person's life which are, which, which are praiseworthy uh, and be thankful they respect the person of Christ which they will if they're nominal uh, th that's the point where you can start yes That's a very good question. Let me answer that with, make a series of simple points. First, um, it's important to have a sense of urgency. I did with my father. He was going to die. Uh, there wasn't much time. But even in such a setting with a person I loved desperately uh, and did not want to see in a very personal way facing the judgment of God 
uh, even there you know that God saves people it's not up to me so yes I, I need to have a sense of obligation I need to have a sense of urgency uh, but uh, I'm not the person to say this is the only opportunity this person will ever have to hear anything that's God's business I'm not afraid that uh, God is just dependent on me you know, he is sovereign and my confidence as an evangelist is that God is the one who saves people and if he puts me in contact with somebody whether it's for long term like my friend I just spoke about who I've known for 43 years or somebody on the plane you know I don't know maybe I'll have a conversation with somebody tomorrow morning I occasionally do on planes I, I don't like telling those stories because it's easy for evangelists to tell such stories and make themselves sound brilliant um, you know, aren't I good at, at, at communicating the gospel uh, in a moment to this person I've never met before and will never see again? Well, sometimes you do have that opportunity. Uh, for an example, last year I was flying home, earlier this year, from Washington, D.C., where I'd gone to do a weekend for the C.S. Lewis Institute there. And uh, on the plane, uh, the guy sitting next to me, uh, we just started chatting, and he was an economics professor uh, at Mizzou the University of Missouri in Columbia, Missouri. And uh, so, of course, I asked him what he'd been doing, and he'd been doing some kind of advisory thing for some department of the government there, uh, just flying out of Washington. And so he asked me what I was doing, uh, and uh, I told him. And uh, he just laughed in derision, um, you know. And, uh, yeah, that you just like what a fool uh, you know you are being a Christian and uh, and uh, said then he told me very proudly uh, he'd grown up in a Christian home it was actually very liberal theologically his far grandfather was a very famous liberal Lutheran pastor and he said I, I gave up Christianity at the age of 17 because I thought the doctrine of the Trinity was just absolute nonsense and so I, I said to him, well, actually, uh, I think the doctrine of the Trinity is one of the most beautiful things about the Christian faith. And he was astonished. And then I, I told him why, uh, that I thought it was just like with my dad. It's the foundation of our understanding of human relationships. We worship a God who is not alone, but where the Father and the Son and the Spirit have loved each other, communicated together, delighted in each other through all eternity. And that we as human beings are made in God's likeness to have the same kind of fellowship and delight in relationships. And uh, he'd already been telling me about how happily married he was, so I talked about his marriage, and his marriage was uh, like a picture of the Trinity. And we had just a lovely conversation, and uh, much to his surprise. And, uh, you know, so y y y you, you know, I've never seen him before. I won't probably see him again, but you try to be faithful. My calling isn't to convert somebody. Uh, it's not to press them to a decision. Uh, but it's rather to be faithful to say what God calls me to say in the setting, to what can be said. Um, working in Brie, uh, often when people were getting close to becoming Christians, we would send them away. You don't have to worry about people. If God is saving somebody, I don't have to be afraid they're going to be zapped the next minute. Uh, 
so we would say, why don't, why don't you go away, away from this pressured situation where we're answering your questions every day and you're hearing people praying and talking about the faith and worshiping the Lord. Just go off by yourself for a while and uh, you know, think about these things. That's why I said to my friend, if I'm pushing you too hard, tell me to back off. Uh, I don't have to, to pressure people into the kingdom because I trust God and I know he's the one who saves and he has a gr much greater passion to save than I do now that doesn't mean we shouldn't have a sense of urgency uh, like with my dad I had a very deep sense of urgency and the more you love somebody the more you'll have that sense of urgency especially as you see them drawing near to death but even then you can't push people you know, if I tried to push my dad he would have been insulted and uh, so you you, you, you you pray because God can do the pushing. Uh, and yeah, you press where you can, but uh, it's not my place to press too hard and insist on a decision. Yes. Yeah, it's a great question. And I would say, obviously, you know, our, our boys, we taught them from when they were like three, four years old. Well, you teach them, as you're teaching them the gospel, that, that being a Christian, being somebody who loves Jesus, means we're called to a life of mercy and kindness. So as soon as they started school, their preschool at the age of four, you know, we taught them that their calling was to look out for kids who were lonely and hurting and be kind to them and merciful. And what that meant as little boys, I had three sons, you know, they were getting to know all kinds of children who came from very broken and very sinful settings. And they were inviting these kids to our home because we were deeply committed to hospitality and they would get invited to their friends' homes. And we let them go. Uh, now, uh, you don't let them go stay in a place where you have no idea what's going on. Uh, you have to be as wise as a serpent, Jesus says. Um, I think about pornography, for example. Let's use this as an illustration. Many of our students at the seminary struggle with pornography. Many of them were exposed to it at the age of like five or six. Uh, when they were totally uninterested in it, but got kind of fascinated by it, even though they didn't really know what it was. Uh, it was either their father's stash of pornography they found, or an uncle's or their next door neighbor's sometimes the pastors I, I'm quite serious somebody who claimed to be a Christian and you know and then they became addicted as little boys 
without any idea really what they were getting into and before they were aware of sexuality themselves. And that, that is tra a tragedy. So with our sons, you, know, you have to be acutely aware uh, of what they're going, being exposed to uh, wherever they go. And if we, you know, we thought that they would be in a situation where they, were, they would possibly be exposed to challenging things, you know, we, we were very careful. Uh, we talked about everything that was going on. Uh, a lot of that has to do with the kind of relationship you have with your children so that they will talk freely. Uh, you know, they're going to be hearing lots of stuff all the time which, which they, you don't agree with. Uh, our children were exposed to people who cursed and blasphemed, uh, etc., from when they were very young. It wasn't something they ever started doing themselves. It's not the way we talked. Um, but uh, many of their friends did, and their friends' parents. Uh, but uh, I don't think these things had a damaging effect on them in any way. The, the effect of it was to actually make them delight in our family life, which was so much happier than these situations into which they were going. And, uh, and their friends loved our family often better than they loved their own because of the hospitality and the love they experienced when they came into our home. So, of course, you have to be careful. You have to be as wise as a serpent. And there are all kinds of situations which you wouldn't let a child go into. Uh, and you have to be careful about that. But you can't but just be suspicious of all non-Christians and think that because these people aren't Christians, then that means there's going to be terrible things happening in their home. It may very well be that this non-Christian home has the best marriage you've ever seen, like my parents. Uh, and... Don't assume that because uh, your kids' parents' friends' parents are Christians that that means everything in the home is going to be wonderful. Uh, I'm very serious. You, you, we need to ask deeper questions about what's actually going on here. And whenever I talk about wife abuse, for example, in a church, uh, I will find that basically... 10% of the women are experiencing abuse in their homes. So I, I need to ask some deeper questions than are these people Christians or non-Christians? I need to ask some questions about what kinds of sins are going on in the home. Am I comfortable with my children being in that particular setting rather than making this kind of blanket judgment? Um, Here's a Christian family. This isn't a Christian family. That's off off limits. Um, yeah, I'm certainly not going to get six-year-olds going to a home where they're watching pornographic movies. That's not helpful to anybody. Uh, and so, you you really have to know what's going on. But that that has to do with your commitment to actually know people yourself. So you're not just sending your children out like sheep in t among wolves. Uh, but you you must teach your children to be merciful. You, you can't say, well, you can practice the mercy side of Christianity when you get to be 18 years old. Uh, I have students at the seminary who were taught by their parents to have no non-Christian friends. And ministry is going to be extraordinarily difficult for them because they have to have a complete paradigm shift because now they're being called by Christ to go out into the world to minister to the lost and they've never known a non-Christian in their life.
and here they are at seminary preparing to be pastors. Well, that's hopeless. Uh, and they have, to, they have to, to start all over again. They feel very uncomfortable in relationships with non-Christians. Uh, my sons don't. Uh, they're very comfortable because they've been making friends with unbelievers all their lives. And uh, it hasn't stopped them being deeply committed Christians and walking in obedience to the Lord. This is where we have to take Jesus very seriously. When Jesus prays for us in John 17 that we are to be in the world as he was in the world, and that includes our children, Jesus goes on to say, and I will pray that the Father will protect you from the evil one in the world. And I will say this to you, and it may sound kind of a paradoxical thing to say, it is safer for Christians to be obedient to Christ's calling and follow him into the world than it is to stay in the holy huddle of the church. Because that we, we all need Christian friends. Our children need Christian friends. But that's not all we need. We're called to follow Christ into the world. And we'll actually be safer doing what he says. Let me give an illustration. Uh, a church I know really well, which I love very dearly, uh, and which at one time was a church growing and regularly having non-Christians in, come in, became a church which uh, became kind of ingrown. Uh, a friend of mine went, went there to visit, and I said, how was it? And he said, well, it was wonderful, but they're loving each other to death. <laughs> and it was a kind of prophetic word. And two years later, the church split. And then two years after that, it split again. And it's now three little churches, which their combined numbers are, are smaller than the church itself was 20 years ago. And that happened because they became ingrown and they stopped looking out and following Christ into the world and became just committed to building this wonderful Christian community where you end up biting and devouring each other to death, and that's what they did. Uh, and it's just a tragedy, because there are people I love very dearly in that church, and I go back to minister to them when I can. But uh, what's happened makes me very sad. Uh, they'd have done far better to carry on the calling, which they were following at one point, uh, of serving the Lord and seeking to reach out and getting to know their neighbors and their friends and colleagues and love them and serve them, be merciful to them and share the gospel with them as God gave opportunity. But it does take time, of course. You know, coming back to your question earlier, it does take time. The average time in Britain, well, let's start with France. The average time in France, it takes somebody to become a Christian after you first get to know them is 10 years. That's the average. Um, it's not always that long. My, I have a French daughter-in-law who grew up in a non-Christian home. She became a Christian within a few months of meeting my son. That, but that's very unusual. Her sister and her friends, you know, they've been married now for 15 years. And they've been praying for them. We've been praying for them. Uh, we've been doing everything we can to reach out to them. Uh, some of them are interested, but nobody else has yet become a Christian. Uh, 
But if you go to work in France, that's what you will expect to see. Uh, an average of 10 years. It's the same in Japan. In Britain, the average is about five years uh, after you first get to know somebody for them to become a believer. Here in the States, it's usually two or three. That's the average. Of course, there are people who become Christians quicker, and there's some much lower, like my last friend I mentioned there. It's been 43 years. But uh, you know, the, I'm sure the Lord is going to save him. I don't have any doubt about it. But uh, that's the Lord's business, not mine. Uh, in the meantime, I'll pray for him and, and hang in there and uh, uh, do what we can. Yes? Um, yeah, that, that, that's interesting. Well, um, yes, uh, I remember several people going to them and challenging them to, to think about planting new churches. Uh, and at one point, they almost called a pastor who would have done that. And this was really the turning point. They decided not to call him. Because one of the members said, you know, if we vote for him, he's going to change us. And we're going to, you know, we won't have this kind of situation where we're all meeting together every week. You know, we're going to be split apart and we're going to be going off to plant churches here, there, and so on in the community. And so they turned him down. And that was really the turning point. And they stopped really reaching out locally, uh, as well as not planting new churches. They stopped reaching out. Uh, when I'd go to visit, I didn't see any new faces. You know, it was just the same people still. And you know, that was just very sad. So the, the whole focus became inward and on serving themselves, on building the community, uh, teaching themselves, raising themselves, rather than looking out to the world. And that's deeply disobedient to the Lord. And it's, you know, the church is called to be God's mission agent in the world. As the Father sent me, so I send you. And when we stop doing that, it grieves the Holy Spirit. And it also opens a door for the devil who likes idle hands. And when we're not serving God in the way we ought to be, you know, we become focused entirely on what we're doing and then we start disagreeing about things. Because rather than having this mission which we're passionate about to the world, you know, we just have these things we're doing for each other which we start fighting about. I'm afraid this is a typical pattern in a church which becomes ingrown. And it's such a setting tends to get smaller and smaller. More and more critical of other Christians because nobody else is quite as faithful as we are. Nobody else has quite the community we do. Nobody else has the same doctrinal commitments we have. So there are all kinds of characteristics which are likely to happen in such a setting. You know, we start fighting over details 
rather than being committed to the mission of God. And it, that invariably ends in sorrow uh, and division. Uh, and I could give you dozens of examples of this, but I'm sure you're all, you've seen them yourself. You know, in churches and denominations. Francis Schaeffer you know, went through a spiritual crisis back in 1950 uh, over precisely this issue. Uh, he looked at the churches of which he was a part, the whole movement of which he was a part, very conservative, very fundamentalist, very evangelical, very separated. And he just said, this is ugly. You know, where is the love for God? Where is the love for other Christians who are different? Where is the love for non-Christians? Where are the new hymns? Where is the new devotional literature? Uh, we are characterized only by the things we're against, not by anything we're for. And we're constantly fighting each other and striving for power and purity within ourselves. If this is what Christianity is, I don't want to be a Christian. And he went through a period of six months where he felt he had to go back to the beginning. He grew up in a non-Christian home and asked all over again, is Christianity true? Uh, do I, am I prepared to be a Christian? Do I want to be a Christian? And he came out of that both with, uh, both with a, a renewed conviction, yes, this is the truth, but also with a, a, a renewed understanding of the Christian life as a life of, of love, a life of service, a life of prayer, a life of dependence on the Lord. And, uh, and uh, you know, what came out of that was his book, True Spirituality, which is really a classic. It was published many years later, but that was what came out of that, and uh, a renewed understanding of, of the Christian life. And... Uh, but also a new passion for outreach uh, and uh, for serving God's mission in the world. Um, if you're interested in that, um, if you buy the most recent edition of True Spirituality, I wrote a 30 or 40 page introduction in there uh, about the crisis in his life, uh, which, led, which led eventually to him writing that book. But uh, yes, Yeah. Yes. Well, obviously, writing tracts uh, is a good thing. Uh, God has used tracts. They're simple statements of, of the basic uh, beliefs that are at the heart of the Christian faith. So uh, anything which is a, a good summary of what Christians believe is going to be helpful. You know, many churches 
produce such simple statements for their own use, for their members to give to friends, uh, to fellow students. You know, this is what we believe. These are, the, these are the convictions that are at the heart of our life as Christian believers. So, and some tracts are very creative in the way they're written. So, yeah, of course, tracts or any other Christian literature are, are useful uh, to give to people. And there's no question but that God uh, saves people through very quick contacts. I've had occasions in my own life where I've seen people become Christians the day I've met them. But that's rather rare. That's not how God usually saves people. And in the Gospels themselves, you see many encounters Jesus has with people which don't lead to them coming to faith right then. There are occasions when they do, like the woman at the well and Zacchaeus, but there are other occasions when they don't, where we know they were converted later, uh, like Nicodemus, for example, or the rich young ruler, uh, appears to have become a Christian some months or a year later or whatever. We don't know exactly when. Many of the Pharisees were converted after Jesus' death and resurrection, Pharisees who must have heard Jesus' teaching uh, and rejected it at the time. So... Oh, yeah, God, God indeed may sa save people uh, very quickly and he may use some evangelistic approach which is uh, a very simple presentation of the gospel in one way or another. But I will tell you, such methods really depend very much on the kind of context in which you're speaking. L let me tell you a story here. Um, in Europe, which has been post-Christian for a long time, for a couple of generations, already back in the late 60s, uh, we had many young people working with Campus Crusade, with InterVarsity, with the Navigators, uh, with Youth with a Mission, with Operation Mobilization, other ministries like that, uh, uh, many of which have taught very direct, uh, simple approaches, methods of evangelism. And we have many young people coming to Labrie uh, for two reasons. Uh, they've come here from the States. They had been taught these approaches to evangelism. And they used them in Europe, and they were ineffective, almost invariably already. This was in the late 60s. And many of them would come to Labrie with two questions. How do we talk to these people? You know, the methods we've been taught aren't working. And secondly, uh, very often the non-Christians would attack them for what they believed and say, you're crazy to believe this stuff. And so many of them came to have their own faith put back together because of the doubts that had been created by the unbelievers, which they didn't feel able to deal with, which started raising problems for them. And so we had just piles of people from wonderful organizations who had gone to Europe really like sheep among wolves, uh, thinking that their methods would work and they didn't work because most of those methods require, coming back to, to the earlier question here, require people who already have some respect for the Bible, have some knowledge of Jesus, have some sense of accountability to God, some expectation they're going to face judgment. In Europe, there was hardly anybody like that already in the 1960s. 
people don't believe in God. They have no biblical knowledge. Half the population of Britain in a survey last year didn't even know what Easter was. That shows you how ignorant people are of the Christian faith. Now, one of the things that happened there was one of these ministries, which will be nameless for the purposes of this if it's being recorded, one of these ministries, they, their young people had found it so helpful that their national organization invited Francis Schaeffer to come and speak to all their staff because they'd found the Breeze input so helpful in terms of talking to skeptical Europeans and also putting their own faith back together. And But when headquarters back here in the States heard about it, it was vetoed by the leader of the ministry who said, you know, you're calling us to just go pluck the ripe fruit. Uh, don't ask, don't take any notice of people's questions. Uh, those are just... a." Uh, uh, a confusion, a rabbit trail. You, you just preach the gospel. If people exactly, yeah, they're closed doors. Just move on. Pluck the ripe fruit and uh, move on. Uh, and uh, you know these uh, are like the people Jesus says, "Shake the dust off your feet. Just move on." Well, something very moving happened for me a couple of years ago. Uh, in, in this organization, I had to then write to Schaefer and say, "Sorry, we can't have you." And he wasn't angry or upset. He just was sorry. Uh, they were very embarrassed. Well, a couple of years ago, that same organization uh, in that same national ministry uh, invited me to come and talk to them. You know, this is 40 years later. And it was just very moving being there because uh, they're still supposed to be doing the same thing but the effect of it in the situation where they are in a very secular European setting is they're no longer doing evangelism at all because there is no ripe fruit and so they're, what they're doing is discipleship of people who are already Christians which is a wonderful thing to do but all the people supporting them think they're doing evangelism in Europe and so my task was to simply go and tell them, you have a freedom to become friends with people. There isn't any ripe fruit here. You know, the Lord calls you to long-term relationships with these people, to give yourself to them, to get to know them, to start praying for them, to be hospitable to them, to develop close relationships. And it was just very moving to be there. It just made me weep because here you are 40 years down the road and this ministry has stopped having fruit completely because there is no ripe fruit. Now, I'm not saying the methods themselves are problematic. They're not. But they were, de they were developed in a context here in the States where the assumption was that many people in the population have a basic biblical knowledge that they're basically churched people. If we use a New Testament parallel, it would be like these are like Jews who've been going to the synagogue all their life and God-fearing Gentiles rather than the pagans. And that's the assumption behind those methods, that these are basically churched people who have no personal faith, coming back to the earlier question. And in that's, that's the setting in which those methods like evangelism explosion, the four spiritual laws, 
the Roman road, they all developed in that setting. And God has used them very fruitfully in that setting. But even here in the States, 50% of the population are no longer in that position. One of my students, a couple of years ago, went down into a part of St. Louis and he made a film. And he basically just asked people on the street uh, at random four kind of basic worldview questions. Who are we? Where are we? What's the problem? And is there a solution? And do you have any hope? And what was amazing was everybody wanted to talk. Everybody took his question seriously. Nobody said to the question, you know, who am I? You know, I'm Joe Blow and I live here in University City, St. Louis in Missouri. I'm American, I'm this and that. Everybody started answering the question at a deep level. Uh, what was remarkable, I mean, he filmed the whole thing. Yeah, a friend was going around with him, and people would sometimes say, well, what do you mean by a question? He says, that's up to you. You know, what do you mean, think this question means? But he didn't meet a single person who had any Christian knowledge or understanding at all. And he was talking to people for like three hours, videoing them. No, this was like, I mean, he must have talked to 40 people. Uh, some of them wanted to talk, and they said, please come back. You know, but he said, why don't people ask me these questions? These are important questions. And uh, you know, it was just amazing. And then, then he showed the, the, the film he made to my class. It was just extraordinary, um, because it just kind of blew them away, because you, know, y you think that everybody around us you know, is basically a lapsed Christian. Well, they're not. You know, there, there are plenty of people like that, and there, there are some here in the southeast, but there's lots of people here who aren't too, you know, who actually have no biblical knowledge. Yeah, they may say they believe in God, 90% of Americans do, but if you put any content in that, actually last week, go read it, there was a big article in USA Today which was asking people, it was a survey on what people believed about God, and it has almost no Christian content at all in terms of, of their convictions. So yeah, there's nothing wrong with the methods, but they assume too much for where people are today. And uh, I would say happily use such a method if it's appropriate in a particular context, but it's no substitute for getting to know somebody. Francis Schaeff used to say, if I have only an hour with somebody, I'm going to spend 55 minutes asking them questions. And the last five minutes, I'm going to try to say something so that I'm actually going to speak to this person rather than downloading this information that I want to pass on. That's why when you read the Gospels, Jesus never has the same conversation twice. Every conversation is particular to the person to whom he is speaking. And that's our calling too. Yes, I'm happy to use a summary of the gospel. Let me give you an example. My, my dearest friend in the world. Uh, I'll just tell you how he started coming to the church where I served as a pastor. Uh, because we 
had taught the kids to make friends with the unbelievers around, uh, his daughter got invited to a birthday party. She was seven years old. Uh, a birthday party of one of the member, the daughters of one of the members of our church. So this little girl goes to this party, and her dad goes to pick her up. They just recently moved about six months before into our area. And uh, she got to meet her at school, this friend. They'd become good friends. So, so this guy goes to pick, 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 pick his daughter up from the birthday party. Uh, never met any of these people before. And he just started chatting with them. And he liked them. So he said, how do you people know each other? And they said, well, we, we go to this church. So the next Sunday he came to church so with his wife and children. And it's I met him. Let's call him Henry. And, uh, you know, Henry, why are you here? And he said, oh, I was at this birthday party and I liked the people, so uh, I came. And uh, they just started coming every week. And uh, I decided, you know, I was going to make an effort to, to get to know him personally. I liked him immediately, and so I started playing squash with him every week. Uh, I love to play squash and tennis. And uh, so I played squash every week. We'd get together, and, and in England, what a pastor does, when you go out and play squash with a friend in the evening, you go to a pub afterwards and have a beer. That's what pastors do in the British setting. Uh, so that's what we were doing every Tuesday evening, going and playing. Yeah. <laughs> this was in a Presbyterian church where I was a pastor. And uh, so uh, I, I would go, and uh, that way we'd go, and we just started chatting, getting to know each other really well, and uh, you know, developing a wonderful relationship and sharing all kinds of things. And... Uh, then one day he said to me, um, what do I have to believe to become part of this church? We just love it. So I sat down with him and his wife, and uh, I went through the five questions I ask people when I baptize them. Um, who is God? What's your problem? Who is Jesus? What did he do? Do you trust that? What now? And uh, I just went through those questions with him, and he said, yeah. Yeah, I do. He's still my dearest friend. And, uh, you know, we uh, see each other regularly. But um, whenever we go back to England. But, um, yeah, I mean, that's, uh, there, there are times when it's perfectly appropriate to, to share a simple presentation of the gospel. I think that's I think that's an interesting point. Um, you, you never take it for granted that people are safe. You know, our, we taught our sons to make lots of non-Christian friends, and they did. And so our home was just a constant kind of meeting place for all kinds of people. And especially when we moved here to the states, it was very interesting because they were English and they felt so out of place because actually the culture is very different. So almost all their friends were people from minority cultures. 
they were African Americans or Koreans or Chinese or Japanese or Malaysians or Arabs or Israelis or whatever. You just so we had this just parade of multicultural people through our home, and uh, which was fun. Uh, m- almost all of them non-Christians, and it was just very very interesting. But uh, you pray for your children. You don't assume they're going to be safe. Uh, I think it's very important that you answer the questions of children when they're very small. You don't just say to them, you're too young to think about that. Just pat them on the head. You take them really seriously. In fact, I would say for you as parents, some of the most precious times we'll have, you'll have as a parent are when you take your children's questions about difficult things really seriously. So if a four-year-old asks you about death, you have a careful conversation with them about how terrible it is and the wonder of the gospel and the resurrection from the dead. Don't say you're too little to think about that. Uh, you, you don't want to ever do that. Uh, or, and don't just say, as what Shafe used to say, don't just load the problem on the donkey of devotion. And don't just say, well, pray and read the Bible. Shafe used to say, eventually the donkey of devotion will lie down and die because you're asking it to carry all kinds of burdens it wasn't intended to carry. Your Christianity is true, so you answer questions. In fact, you need to raise them. Uh, as a pastor, one of the things I used to do once a month, we had a service where well, we always wanted people to bring their non-Christian friends. But we had a service once a month which was particularly focused for unbelievers. And on those Sundays, I would preach a sermon to the children. They would stay with their parents, but I would preach it as a dialogue. And I would take a basic issue like, who is God? What does it mean to be human? Who are we? You know, what's our problem? Where is history going? You know, how should we live? You know, some basic question, the problem of evil. And I would preach it as a dialogue with the children. And I would ask the kids, you know, what does the world say about this? What does the culture say about who we are? And, you know, some five-year-old would say, we're monkeys, you know. Yeah, when children are aware of what's going on in the culture, uh, and it's appropriate they should be. And so the kids would, uh, and, and to preach a sermon like this, like a dialogue, you have to be much better prepared than if you've just decided this is what I'm going to say. You've got to have some idea of where the kids might take this. And then I would say, you know, we think about what the culture says, and they'd say, but what does God say? You know, what does God's word say? And so what, what I was trying to do was develop in the children uh, and in their parents, of course. I mean, the parents loved those sermons more than any others because they gave them wonderful opportunities for talking with their own kids. But it, 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 it encouraged the children to realize that it's not a problem. We don't have to be afraid of what the world is saying. We don't have to hide from it. And Christianity answers the questions in a wonderful way. And so you're developing a biblical worldview uh, and a deep conviction of the truth of Christianity in your children and young people. And so they feel comfortable with their friends. They don't mind if people raise objections because they feel secure with objections. Uh, my, my sons grew up in a setting where every day of their life they heard people asking me the do- most difficult questions imaginable at the dinner table. 
saying, how can you possibly be a Christian with this and that? And, you know, my sons are sitting there, little boys, listening to all this stuff, you know, these attacks on the Christian faith and on the Bible. And I don't think it hurt them at all. Helped them uh, in, in all kinds of ways. Uh, we don't have to be afraid like that. That doesn't mean we take it for granted. We pray for our children. Uh, and you, you know that they're going to be faced with challenges, challenges to what they believe in the classroom, at school, and at college. They'll be you know, faced with challenges from their friends. How can you believe this? Um, but you help them work those things through. You, you keep a channel of communication open and just keep working away. Uh, and you know that the Lord is praying for their protection as well. Uh, and so we can be confident that he, he has them in his hands. That's a good question. Is Europe more open or shut? Well, I would say that they're, they're everywhere there's a live church, it's growing. But they're starting from such a small base. You, know, the, you, you don't see a dramatic turning to the Lord in large numbers. Uh, every live church I know has people becoming Christians in ones and twos here and there. So we, I see good things happening, but uh, the church is very tiny. Uh, and the powers of secularism there are huge, uh, and so very, very challenging. But, uh, but yeah, we we have many graduates who go to work in Europe, and God is doing wonderful things through them. So, so yeah, uh, good things are happening there. Jerem, thank you. He's going to hang around for a little while. If you have uh, another question you want to ask him, there's some coffee and cookies out here. Um, he didn't have to leave till six o'clock in the morning, so he's got, you know, nine hours here. So, what a so, what a friend this guy is, you know. I met a new friend this weekend, but. Uh.